Welcome back to Time Out with the Sports Doctor podcast, where life, sports, and medicine intersect. We're very glad that you continue to support this podcast. You can get the information on any platform uh, where podcasts are played, as well as getting the video content on YouTube. But if you want to just get one place to find all the content, go to my website at drgarrickthesportsdoctor.com and you will find everything on that website. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. All right, so welcome to another episode of Time Out with the Sports Doctor, and you're in for another treat. Uh, we have another very interesting guest in Dr. Dean Gomez, who is a sports neuropsychologist. So very specialized profession in medicine, taking care of athletes, specifically taking care of concussions in athletes. And he recently finished his fellowship at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, where they are doing some cutting edge research on concussion. So go ahead and do whatever you got to do because you want to be tuned in at the end of this episode to hear some treatments about concussions that's definitely going to rock your world and kind of shake up everything that you know about concussions. So hey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dr. Burgess. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to be on here, talk about my journey a little bit, talk about the things that, you know, I've overcome throughout this journey and get to discuss concussion. You know, some of the more modern uh, clinical approaches, how this injury should be treated, and things like that. So I'm excited. Thank yeah. you for having me. I really appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And congratulations once again, because, hey, finishing the formal training, now it's just getting started as far as how you do things clinically, but finishing exactly. the formal training um, on this long road for medicine, and now you're officially you know, a neuropsychologist. First, talk about your path. How long does it take to complete a PhD? You know, how did you kind of decide sure. on what you wanted to do? So, you know, I went to graduate school in 2015 at Fordham University in New York City. I got into their clinical psych program. PhD in clinical psychology typically takes around five years, give or take. You know, um, I completed mine in six. And then in order to uh, become a neuropsychologist, it's a two-year required uh, fellowship in neuropsychology. And I just completed that in uh, September 2023, this month at UPMC. So my interest in neuropsychology kind of grew, I would say, organically. When I first started my, you know, undergraduate studies and things like that, I did not know or have any idea that I would become or wanted to become a neuropsychologist. It just sort of played out with different um, experiences I've had in different clinical roles. So when you're in grad school, you do various externships. Each year, you'll do uh, a clinical externship, you know, two to three days a week, about 16 to 20 hours, you know, you have different opportunities to have different placements. And that's where I first was exposed to the world of neuropsychology. And then after first being exposed to it, then I started to formulate this subspecialty that I was really interested in, both from my personal career, you know, playing football, from some of the patients that I'd seen in my externships, and, and really just, you know, having a need for uh, improved concussion management and treatment. It's such a specialized area but in the same note it's an area that i think treatment wise you know a lot of the more cutting edge approaches are not really known or not that well disseminated you know throughout the world so just with seeing that there was a big need for it plus the you know organic and intrinsic interest that i had in it from my own uh you know playing days it just sort of coalesced into you know where i'm at today Sure. So you played college football. So how long ago were you a college football athlete? So I graduated from college in 2011. 
2011. So, so let's call it a decade ago. Decade ago, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, um, I played from 2007 to 2011. I went to the University of Rochester, small division three school in upstate New York. I was a defensive back, you know, wasn't the greatest player by any admission at all. But, you know, I love playing football. I love playing sports. So, yeah, it was a great experience. You know, our, our head coach was Scott Green. He used to play in the NFL. So, you know, for a Division three school, it was a significant time commitment. You know, uh, we ran practices sort of like the NFL guys would run practices, similar schedules. So, you know, I made a lot of great relationships in that experience. I saw teammates and opponents have various head injuries and concussions. Um, and, you know, I just got to, you know, live out my dream, which was to play college football, you know, albeit at a low level, but it was a great experience for me and I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it back for anything. Yeah. And, you know, being a college athlete, it doesn't matter. It's still, it doesn't matter if it's division three or division one, it's a major commitment, number one. And then yeah. you still have to work extremely hard to not only balance being a student, but being an athlete at the same yeah. time. So, you know, and you take away life lessons exactly. from the field. You know, you know that's why school, I said yeah, I wouldn't take it back because I think it helped build so much resilience. It helped build so much physical, mental, spiritual, emotional toughness. And it helped me build a lot of time management skills. You know, you're getting out of practice, 6.37, going to study hall, you have films, meetings. So it just teaches you how to juggle the various demands that you're going to have to encounter as you go through life. You know, so... Yeah. It was a great experience. Yeah. So first, that's, you know, a little bit over a decade ago. Talk about the treatment of concussions when you were an athlete versus now we're not even going to get into now, but just talk yeah, about sure. how it was then. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say the treatment that I saw teammates, you know, have that had concussions. Fortunately, luckily for me, I've never been concussed. So I don't, you know, know what it's like from, from a patient perspective, but I've had, you know, teammates that have had concussions. And I would say it was treated very similarly to how it's often treated now, which was with rest, uh, with avoidance. There was a teammate of mine. He was a year younger than me. He had a concussion in a game, hitting a tight end over the middle. And I remember him being in sunglasses for a really long time. I mean, so, you know, it was mostly rest-based, avoidance-based. There wasn't really any targeted treatment, meaning you know, because concussion often resolves on its own. The treatment is essentially no treatment. It's essentially just rest, relax, avoid activities that are going to provoke your symptoms, avoid environments that are going to provoke your symptoms, work out to your capacity. So, you know, if you can get in some workouts, go for some runs, but if you have symptoms, you know, cut it down and relax. And that's sort of, you know, how, uh, how it was treated, which unfortunately is not very dissimilar to to how it's currently treated. So not much difference at all, really. Yeah. So I remember, you know, playing high school sports in the late nineties. And that was at the point where, you know, if you had a concussion, you were reevaluated that same game after about 15 minutes. Yeah. And if symptoms had resolved at that point, you could go back in the game, you know, way different. And, yeah. Way different now. So, <laughs> all right. Well, talk about, you know, your course through, graduate school did you know sure. right away hey I want to be a neuropsychologist or did you yeah so I mean I'll, I'll take you back from before that in undergrad I wanted to be a, a medical doctor you know so I came into my undergrad studies at University of Rochester with the goal of becoming an MD you know I'll say that my first couple of years playing sports being a typical college student I was not the most academically oriented I was not the most focused so you know I really wasn't able to maintain the appropriate GPA 
to be able to stay within uh, pre-med. University of Rochester is also a pretty difficult school to, you know, be pre-med. I give Dr. Rudolph Napadano, who you uh, work with, a lot of credit for that. He was one of my buddies, a fellow uh, football player there. You know, he stuck it out. He grinded and he was able to to achieve that medical degree. You know, I unfortunately wasn't able to, but while I was taking pre-med classes as part of my electives, I uh, also started to study psychology. You know, I found that it was really interesting. It applied to so many different other fields and professions, you know, have an element of psychology to it. So I just thought it would be something that was really valuable to have sort of on my resume. And from there, I always felt I could do whatever, you know, if I wanted to go into business, if I wanted to go into finance, if I wanted to be an entrepreneur, I always felt like there would be some element of psychology that I could apply to whatever other endeavors I would be you know, undertaking as I, as I move forward. My senior of college, I started to really hone down what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. My interest in psychology had really grown. And I started to realize that in some capacity, I didn't know what I wanted to work with children, adolescents, uh, and families. You know, I just felt like due to the neuroplasticity, it's such a critical time for development that if you're able to intervene early with children, with adolescents, you can make such positive long-term change. So I felt like that was a population that was definitely my primary interest. When I graduated from uh, undergrad, I felt like I wanted to continue my education. I wanted to get my doctorate. So I applied to various PhD programs. Uh, Initially, I did not get in anywhere. I applied to maybe 15 PhD programs. I had two interviews. Um, One of those was actually Fordham, but I was not accepted anywhere. After some feedback, you know, I was told that my application was decent, but I was a little bit lacking in uh, research experience. So I went back. I uh, was really fortunate enough to be able to work at the Mount Hope Family Center at the University of Rochester. This is a research and um, clinical facility that researches maltreatment, trauma in children and adolescents, long-term outcomes. They have tons of grant-funded NIH studies and things like that, that they're doing really tremendous work. Um, I worked under Dr. Fred Rogosh, who recently passed away, uh, Dr. Cicchetti, Dr. Toth, and a bunch of other preeminent scholars within the field of maltreatment and trauma. I did that for two to three years, reapplied to graduate school. I was about 25 at this time. Thank God I got in because I don't know if I would have gave it a third, a third <laughs> try, but you know, was able to, to get into Fordham. So I came in studying child and family studies. My first externship was at Inwood Community Services. So this was up in Inwood, New York, primarily a substance abuse population and primarily therapy. So at this point, I'm not doing any neuropsych stuff, right? I'm doing uh, psychotherapy, helping individuals who uh, have different substance abuse disorders. Most of them are on parole. I enjoyed that. That was cool. I didn't really know anything about neuropsych then, but I thought it was a valuable experience. My second externship was then at uh, New York City Children's Center, right? Because I'm still in the mold of I want to work with children and families. This is a psychiatric hospital, highest level of care in New York State for kids and adolescents with severe emotional disorders. So we're talking things like significant self-harm, suicidal attempts, delusions, schizophrenia, really severe Uh, disorders. I did that for a year. I thought that was really interesting as well, because I got to see sort of the other side of the coin. You know, a lot of times you're working with individuals who have different types of psychopathologies, but are generally well functioning, right? So these are sort of uh, individuals who are not really functioning within a societal level. So they need that sort of 
24-7 uh, support and care. And a lot of them do graduate out, but for that acute time period, um, you know, they will be there and they'll be receiving, you know, daily uh, long-term care and things like that. Um, my third externship, I then went to uh, Milestone Psychology. So this is a private practice in uh, New York City. This was my first taste of real traditional neuropsych, and this was rare. I first started to see concussions. All right, so now I'm doing testing. We're assessing essentially the behavioral components of various neurological disorders and neurodevelopmental dysfunction and things like that. So I'm mostly assessing kids with ADHD, learning disabilities, autism. We have, you know, kids who have been, you know, uh, receiving radiation for cancer treatment, epilepsy, you know, a, a various spectrum of, of neurological disorder, disorders. But within that, we got to see a couple concussions. The concussions that we saw were mostly work-related. So it was workers' comp. We saw a couple motor vehicle accidents. I'd say maybe two per month I saw. So not very many, if that, maybe one to two per month. And it was uh, a similar approach had, that I mentioned earlier, which was rest-based. So we would give people CNS vital signs, which is a neurocognitive computerized test, similar to IMPACT, but IMPACT was developed specifically for concussion and has been empirically validated for concussion. CNS vital signs has not. And we actually started to do the VOMS, which is the vestibular ocular motor screening, right? So at Staten Island, I saw that we're doing different assessments within the cognitive domains, within the vestibular domains, but our um, treatment recommendations were all similar. It was always two weeks rest, come back and then reassess. So within that two week framework, we weren't really providing uh, targeted treatments or recommendations. And then it was sort of uh, uh, the same thing. So that was my first taste of concussion. And that is also where I started to formulate this idea for my thesis. I was being supervised by Dr. Uh, Rosemary Basil at Staten Island University Hospital. And um, she was like, oh, I see that you're you know, into sports. You were an athlete. You've got to see some concussions. You've asked some interesting questions about concussion. Why don't you research this for your dissertation? I was like, awesome, cool. Like, let's do it. So for my dissertation, essentially, I looked at subjective, which is like symptom report on a, on a self-report measure versus objective, which would be their um, performance on the computerized neurocognitive test to see if those two things matched up, right? So is an individual who's concussed able to accurately assess the cognitive deficits that they will then show on computerized testing? And what I found with my dissertation was that those patients were able to accurately, accurately assess the deficits they had within the realm of executive functioning, but not really within other realms. So verbal memory, visual memory, not so much, but they were able to say, you know, I am having trouble with planning and organizing and things like that. And we found that that did track when they took the uh, neurocognitive screener. I then went on to my fourth externship. This was at Milestone Psychology, a uh, private practice in New York City. Here, I was back to the more traditional pediatric neuropsychology batteries, the ADHD evals, learning disability evals, no concussion here. But during that process, I was still working on my dissertation, still in touch with the folks at Staten Island University, right? And so when I was looking for a, a fellowship, you know, I knew I wanted to do a neuropsych fellowship. The first fellowship interview that I actually got was at UPMC Concussion Clinic. It was virtual. I met with all the providers there. And long story short, they had offered me a position, I think, like that day. So they kind of uh, 
put the fire under me to make a decision. I hadn't even had any interviews yet, but just with the work that they were doing, the excellence that they displayed, you know, being preeminent, you know, researchers and clinicians in the field, plus my own interest, you know, I'm seeing pictures of the Steelers facility. I'm seeing their <laughs> practice field. I'm seeing their weight room. I'm seeing footballs. I'm like, all right, you know, this is what we're talking about here. I could yeah. definitely see myself in this setting with sort of like-minded people, you know, um, you being an athlete yourself within the professional realm, you know, there's something about, you know, working with other athletes. It's it just right. sort of, you know, not even an unspoken thing, but there's just some, some subtleties and some nuances right, with someone that's played sports that you can relate to easily. And I felt that connection when I went to UPMC. So I accepted that. And, you know, and, and really, the rest is history. That's I did that for two years. And now this is where I'm at. Yeah, you know, some people might say, well, you might have wasted a lot of time or you wasted a lot of steps. But imagine when you applied for this fellowship, they were like, okay, this guy's got a wealth of experience, you know, and that's probably why it was so easy to offer you a job because you tried different things and you know that you arrived to the place where you wanted to go. Well, many times in life, we just kind of blindly choose a path and many people will just continue to down that path because of the fear of doing something different. But, you know, kudos to you for really just continuing to try different things until you found exactly what you wanted to do. Sure. Yeah. You know, it was... I, like I said, it, it developed organically. I didn't think that this would be my interest. If you had asked me 10 years ago, there's no way I would have said neuropsychologist or sports-related concussion. I would not have said any of those two words. But, you know, just from the experience and seeing what UPMC had to offer, it was sort of a no-brainer that I really couldn't turn down. Yeah, absolutely. So let's first kind of define, you know, briefly what a concussion is, and then let's talk about how we kind of work up and treat people with concussions? Sure. So a concussion is a mild traumatic brain injury. So brain injury is within classified on a scale of, of three different um, classifications. There's mild, there's moderate, and there's severe. When you have a moderate to severe, you're usually talking some sort of findings on imaging, right? So if there's a brain bleed or something like that, right now we're talking a moderate to severe. When you're dealing with concussions, there's no blood, there's no swelling. What you're getting is an energy crisis within the cells. So you have various systems within the brain, right? So you have your ocular system, you have your vestibular system, right? And when you're concussed, these, symptom, these uh, systems will begin to decompensate. And that's where you're getting some of these symptoms from, right? So that's where you get the, the photosensitivity, the headaches, the dizziness, the problems in busy environments. So a concussion is really just a shaking of the brain within the skull that results in this neurometabolic, we call a crisis, right? It's an energy crisis. So there's not enough, you know, uh, neurometabolic energy to be able to supply these different systems. And that's sort of where you're getting those symptoms coming from. So for, you know, someone, we know how we deal with athletes when we see this concussion happen, but what about for a parent who has a young athlete, a, a junior high athlete, or you know, a middle school athlete, something of that nature, and they have a kid who's been diagnosed at the emergency room with a concussion, mm -hmm. what should they do initially? Are they, should they find a practitioner to bring them to, or is this something they can monitor at home for a few days? If you're enjoying this episode, don't wait to the end to share it. Share it now. Share this with a friend or a colleague that you think might find value in this information. And then also, 
make sure that you click and leave us a five-star review and give us feedback because we really value your feedback and your input. Now back to the episode. So, you know, that's a, it all depends really, right? So let's talk first, how old are they, right? And what's their mechanism? So if this is a 12-year-old who got in a car accident, right? That's a different story than a 12-year-old who got hit, you know, running the ball, playing football. So let's just take the case of the athletes, right? So you had a 12-year-old athlete, took a hit playing football, you know, on the field, and and I'll get to your question, but on the field, they're going to diagnose concussion. There's what we call acute markers. These are things that would indicate you that you definitively were concussed. Those things are loss of consciousness, post-traumatic or retrograde amnesia, confusion or disorientation, uh, or, or vomiting, right? Any of those things you'd be like, okay, so this person is concussed, right? A lot of times those acute markers are not present and then you're going off of symptoms, right? So do you have a headache? Are you dizzy? Are you nauseous? Are you foggy? Are the lights excessively bright? Are these uh, noises excessively loud? Are you having a problem with everything that's going around you? Meaning like, are you having some visual motion sensitivity where looking at objects uh, moving past you will cause symptoms, right? So then you're assessing immediate symptoms. It's determined they have a concussion, they go to the ER. In the case that that person was imaged, right? And I'm not here trying to say that everyone with a suspected concussion should be imaged because 99% of the time there's nothing there. But, you know, just to make sure they've been imaged. All right, if this person is an athlete, I would then recommend them to probably start some light exertion, but really I would have to evaluate them, right? It's hard to make a determination because I'll take you through sort of UPMC's model. They use what's called the clinical profile model of concussion. Um, There was a 2013 paper that was written by Dr. Collins, uh, Dr. Contos, Dr. Fu, and a couple other colleagues at UPMC where they really sort of delineated these different profiles. And each of these profiles will have an associated treatment, right? So if we go over the profiles, you have post-traumatic migraine, you have vestibular, you have ocular motor, you have anxiety mood, you have cervical, and you have sleep, right? So you would have to get this kid evaluated first to determine, A, what type of concussion he has. Once they're able to figure out what type of concussion he has, we can then determine the type of treatments. If this was an acute injury, meaning it happened that day, we would rarely prescribe any therapies that early, right? Because concussion will often resolve on its own. And there's so much progress that's often made within the first 48, 72, you know, three to four days that you kind of want to wait and see. So I would say, you know, they, it happened today. They're at the ER, they're normal. You're allowed to rest for 48 hours. Research has shown that there's no additional benefit of rest past 48 hours. So maybe I would say, you know, take it easy to tomorrow, see how you feel, and then start to get back to Uh, your normal activities, but just no head injury. So what we'll prescribe is non-contact, low-risk physical activity, right? So if he's a football player, we want him to get back on the field. We want him to start running, lifting. We want him to do his conditioning. If he's a receiver, we want him to catch balls and run routes, right? All of that is his treatment, right? Through running routes and catching balls, you're retraining your vestibular system. You're retraining your ocular motor system. You are providing much-needed oxygen, and cerebral blood flow to the brain, right, which would help resolve that energy crisis. So we want them moving. And then 
we might see him back in clinic four days later, and then we'll now determine what type of additional treatment should be applied. So if this person is, let's say, really dizzy still, they're doing everything, they're still dizzy, and they have specific vestibular impairments, whether that's within the visual motion sensitivity pathway, the ocular motor reflex pathway, then we might consider sending them to vestibular therapy and then giving them some targeted exercises, right? Maybe their eyes are a little bit off, so we'll provide them with pencil push-ups. Maybe they're having visual motion sensitivity, so we'll then provide them with specific exercises that are designed and targeted for that type of uh, dysfunction that they're having. But what I just mentioned, the physical activity, that sort of underlies everything, right? So currently, it's not a rest-based approach. It's been, this injury has been managed with rest for the longest time. And what they found at UPMC is that that approach is not the most effective for rehabbing patients back to normal as quickly as you can. So we're prescribing physical activity. We'll see if they need a targeted treatment, but physical activity is sort of the cornerstone as our participation in all daily activities. So we want that kid in school full-time, right? You're not to miss class. If you have symptoms, we would like you to help combat those symptoms with some sort of physical activity. So like if you're in class and you're starting to get a bad headache, right? We don't want you to go to the nurse's office and lie down. We would say, ask your teacher to excuse you. And I'd say, walk around the building, right? So go for a five minute walk around the building, get back into class, right? So that's what we call behavioral management. It's just doing your normal day-to-day activities with no avoidance, right? So that's, I think, a critical portion of um, treating concussion is the avoidance aspect. We don't want avoidance of any activities. You know, what I'm saying might seem harsh. You might be like, well, <laughs> well, Dr. Gomes, like, you want your patients to just sit here suffering in pain? Nauseous and, and know, headaches. <laughs> not, not really, but kind yeah. of. Like, yeah. not really. Yeah. Like, I'm not, you know, seeming like I lack empathy. I understand those are uncomfortable symptoms, right? But the more you're able to expose yourself to the stimuli that are causing your symptoms, the faster you'll get better and those symptoms will be gone, right? So physical activity, full-time school or work participation, and then it's exposures, right? So we need Expose to- it. Hold on a second, because this is where I want to get some clarity because sure. this is where we're starting to deviate from what people, most people in society are doing right now, because right now is after that 48 hours, you're typically waiting mm-hmm. until- all symptoms are gone before you start to progress back towards return to play or activities. Even sometimes schools, some kids are held out of school for you know a week at a time because they have a headache. But what mm-hmm. you're stating is after 48 hours of rest, that's when you start to challenge the vestibular ocular system exactly. with activities with or without symptoms. And exactly. even if you have those symptoms, you saying, do something a little different, but activity is the mainstay of this new protocol. Correct. Activity, exposures, and when necessary and when indicated, targeted therapies. But if we'll just talk about the fundamentals, activity and exposures. Every day, Dr. Collins would prescribe three exposures. Social, meaning that we need individuals to be exposing themselves to busy environments, grocery stores, shopping centers, restaurants, places that are loud, noisy, and crowded. We need people to go in there and not just step their foot in there and leave. I mean, go in there and stay there, right? Stay there until you feel your symptoms. Once you feel your symptoms to about a five out of 10, right? 
we would recommend leaving, take a walk around the block, but it's critical that you re-engage in that environment. Like we don't want you to end on a loss, meaning we don't want you to feel like that environment defeated you. So it's critical that after you take a walk, you go back into that environment, right? You stay there for a little bit. Um, you do what you were going to do, whether that was you're hanging out with friends, whether that's you're shopping at the grocery store, hang out with friends at the mall, whatever that might be. Right. And then you leave when you're done. So it's essentially just doing your normal day to day stuff, whatever you would do on a Tuesday afternoon. We need you to do that. Right. The second exposure Dr. Collins would recommend is ocular. We need you reading books, watching TV. The kids would love it because we would say, you know, right. you, need you, to play video, we need you to play <laughs> video games. They would always say, Mom, you see, the doctor said we need to play video games. Right. So we need you to be doing everything ocularly that you would be doing anyway. And then the third is physical. That's all physical activity, right? And like I said, non-contact, low risk, right? Lifting weights is a non-contact, low risk activity. Running routes and catching balls is a non-contact, low risk activity. I wouldn't recommend any scrimmages, no games, right? If you're doing thud, which is just sort of like half speed, but you're wearing pads and it's a little bit of contact, no, right? But Everything else, we need you to do it, and we need you to do it full speed. And what they found at UPMC is that approach results in such faster and such more long-lasting recovery um, when you treat people like that. So is that affecting return to play, shorter return to play, or is that not the target? Is the target just challenging the system well, to try to normalize the symptoms? Well, really, we want, you know, it's not just athletes. We want everyone to be normal as fast as they possibly can, right? You know, right. in order orthopedics, if someone has a knee sprain, that can take them three weeks to heal. You wouldn't want them to take five weeks when it's possible, right. when they can be better, you know, in, in a shorter period of time. So it's not just for athletes. Anyone with any sort of injury, including concussion, you know, as a medical provider, I want this person to be better as fast as they humanly can so that they're not dealing with these symptoms and that they're normal and they can get back to their life. So, you know, the approaches that we talk about, we apply to all mechanisms of injury. It's not just sports. We apply those to motor vehicle accidents, the assaults, the workers' comp injuries, work-related injuries, all of that. You know, I would say that it's a little bit more pertinent when you're dealing with athletes, right? Because mm -hmm. they are on a more, I would say, time 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 strict schedule right it matters yeah. the days for these individuals matter right if we're talking 10 versus 12 versus 14 for professional athletes who you know i've had the great honor of being able to work with you know in my past two years at upmc the days matter right and, and right. what we say is when you're normal you're normal right there's some sort of there, there's a little bit of subjectivity to this injury meaning a lot of it is symptom based meaning you have to talk with your patient and say, how do you feel, right? But at UPMC, what they've done is they've tried their best to make it as objective as possible. There's some subjectivity to it because a lot of it is symptom report, but if you can apply all these objective measures, right? Impact testing, are they normal on impact, right? Do they have a baseline? And if they're within their neurocognitive functioning of the baseline, we can say they're normal cognitively, right? They will, will run through uh, different vestibular exercises, different exertional exercises to make sure that they're having no symptoms when they're moving in all four planes, right? Vertical, horizontal, right? Lateral movement, sprinting. You have to test all those different movement patterns to make sure that, okay, this athlete is really normal 
in, in all those different phases. So there's subjectivity to it, but you know, we're really doing our best at UPMC. And I think a lot of places throughout the country to try to eliminate as much subjectivity as you can to that. But yeah, but to, but to answer your question, we want everybody, not just athletes to get better sure, as fast sure. as they can. Right. Yeah. And then one last question. Are we, are you treating these symptoms with medication? Are you saying if you have a headache, take Tylenol, if you have dizziness, you can take something for nausea? For the most part, no, we don't really recommend medication for, you know, um, NSAIDs and things like that for headaches. We'll recommend three times a week maximum. You know, that's mostly to avoid rebound headaches. Very rarely will we send people to uh, neurology for things like, you know, Topamax or other migraine medications, right? We really start behaviorally, right? And then mm -hmm. you sort of go up the pyramid. If all your behavioral approaches don't work, which most of the time they do, 99% of concussions can be treated behaviorally, meaning with full-time work in school, doing your social exposures, physical activity. There'll be a subset of those that need targeted treatments vestibular exertion therapy, in rare cases, optometry, right? But you really don't want to send someone to optometry if that optometrist might overprescribe, you know, long courses of, you know, 30 sessions of vision therapy, because once they're enrolled in that, they cannot be cleared until they're discharged from that. So if someone goes down this sort of optometry route, you have to be careful because you're saying that, okay, you know, they're not going to be released until this optometrist says that, you know, ocularly, as far as their vision, they're normal, right? And then you do all that, that doesn't work. Then you might consider on that last tier, that last rung of the pyramid, some sort of pharmacological treatment. And usually the pharmacological treatment that's applied at UPMC is some sort of uh, psychopharmacological treatment, right? Some sort of SSRI or uh, psychiatric medication, usually to just uh, decrease anxiety in concert with their symptoms. So yeah, that's sort of the last rung, right? And it's usually some sort of SSRI, sort of some sort of psychopharmacological treatment. And um, that's usually because whenever someone has a vestibular issue, a lot of times some sort of accompaniment with anxiety, right? So someone with some sort of vestibular dysfunction often will feel elevated levels of anxiety. Oftentimes when individuals are removed from their activities, meaning like you sort of put people in a dark room, you remove their outlets for stress. They're not around the team. You know, with athletes being a part of a team is such right. a huge part of their identity, right? And it's just a way that they have camaraderie, a way that they interact, right? And I think if you're able to have them in that, in that arena, being with the team, being included, instead of isolated, right, you're able to help them a lot. But back to your question, right, when someone has some vestibular dysfunction, we might consider an SSRI or some sort of um, psychopharmacological treatment, but that is, I would say, rare and not the norm. So gotcha. as far as medication, not really. No, it's you rarely applied sometimes for maybe intractable or difficult cases, but that's only considered once all the other fundamental approaches have been applied. Yeah. Now, this is very excellent, you know, discussion and stimulating information. And as I warn most people listening, this is going to kind of rock your world about what you knew about concussions. So, you know, provide some some places or sources where people can go learn more about what we've discussed. Sure. You know, I would start with UPMC. They're sort of at the center of the concussion world, so to speak. 
Um, you, if you really want an in-depth analysis of what's going on in concussion, I would just do a PubMed search. I would start with the research. You know, look at a lot of the articles that have been published by Dr. Collins. Dr. Anthony Contos is the head of research there. He's a prolific publisher as well. So, you know, I would start with the research, a quick PubMed search for some of the information, some of the articles that have been published at UPMC, right? If you are an athlete who is concussed, right, I would say, you know, you can go to your PCP, you can go to your athletic trainer. A lot of them, you know, might do a solid job with helping you. You know, you can always go to UPMC if you're having symptoms that are lasting a long time. So, you know, if you've had a concussion that was a year ago, you know, a year and a half ago, six months ago, and you're still having symptoms and, you know, and you are doing those behavioral management things, you're working, you're working out, you're not being avoidant, give UPMC a try. Like I said, they're the best in the business. You know, other than that, I would, I would say the research, PubMed, and look at the various research articles. Yeah, now this is excellent. And I know that I have a lot to learn because I was still going by the, you know, wait until all symptoms are over before you start to progress. So this has really kind of changed. You know, sometimes you hear about research that really change your practice and this has definitely done that. So yeah, and you, you know, know I, thank you for I coming on. Thank you, thank you. I yeah. was just gonna say, I understand it's, it might be hard to do because there's different bureaucracy and there's different right. litigation around mm -hmm. the, the six stage return to play protocol. In some mm -hmm. states it's mandated, right. right? So like an athlete, by law cannot have symptoms and progress to the next rung. So, you know, there are some places where it's hard to uh, apply this approach, you know, yeah. bureaucratically. But if you're able to, you know, if, if, if you want to take the time and learn sort of this approach that was adopted at UPMC by Dr. Collins, it's definitely worth the time. I think it would be a tremendous benefit to your practice and also the patients that you're able to treat. Absolutely. And tell people how they can follow the work you're doing and, you know, if they want to contact you. Sure. So I will be um, working at the Center for Cognition and Communication. I'm starting there next week. This is a private practice medical facility on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. You know, we work predominantly with workers' comp cases, some motor vehicle accidents within the near future, the next couple of years. The goal is for me to sort of expand them into the role of sports-related concussion. You can reach me anytime. My number, uh, my cell phone number is 973-699. 1985. And the best email to reach me would be dgomes. So D-G-O-M-E-S-1 at Fordham, F-O-R-D-H-A-M dot E-D-U. Well, hey, thank you, Dr. Gomes. You're very, thank you, Dr. Burgess. you, know, you can really tell you're committed to the work you're doing. You gave out your cell phone number. So exactly. you know, we really appreciate to what you're um, providing to your patients, but not only your patients, but to society in general. So no, thank you for coming on. Thank you for being a guest. And I really appreciate you. Thank you, Dr. Burgess. Have a good one. Appreciate right. it. Thank you for continuing to support this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please leave a five-star review. And if you haven't done so, subscribe so you continue to get the updated episodes. Until later, peace. Hey, time out with the sports doc. Keep our head right in the game. We ain't never stopping. You are now tuned in. Trust, you don't want to miss. This is where life, sports, and medicine.